a great journey in gaming, in mobile, in interactive entertainment, and have enjoyed every minute of it. We just want to make great products and run great services that resonate with audiences around the world. Marriage counseling for acquisition. That's right. I totally see that being my next big endeavor. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the second episode of our podcast. Thanks for having us back. This is about apps, games, and insights. We're your hosts, Tamsin Taylor, myself, and Dirk Prims from Google. The mobile games industry has come a long way from Tetris and Snake. It's now the fastest growing gaming vertical. In this fast-paced environment, many developers are looking to achieve growth through acquisition and mergers. And if you were on Facebook in June 2009, you will definitely know Farmville and Words with Friends. You have Synga to thank for that. They have been actively acquiring games and game developers for over 10 years. Now, if you're a budding game developer out there, you might think or have some preconceptions about what it means to be acquired or merged with a larger company. But it's rarely about taking the money and running. More often, it's about building a business that's going to benefit both parties, building the best to accelerate a game's portfolio. Well, Chris Petrovic, Senior Vice President, Head of Corporate Strategy, Mergers and Acquisitions and Business Development at Zynga, is here today to shed some light on what makes a great merger. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Chris. To start this off, could you tell us a little bit more about how you got into the mergers and acquisition game and what was your journey? So my journey has been about 20 years in the making. Uh, I started in the late 90s as an internet entrepreneur, running a couple of venture-backed startups down in Southern California. Picked the great timing, uh, obviously, right in advance of, of the bubble bursting and the whole internet economy falling apart. So my timing wasn't great to start, and neither of the companies really did all that well. So definitely learned from uh, my failures early on. From there, spent some time in venture capital as an entrepreneur in residence and an executive running uh, a number of companies that we had invested in. And then from there, I made my way into larger media companies being the, the digital head. First, I did that with a uh, U.S.-based company here called American Greetings, obviously a, a paper greeting card-based company that was getting into digital. I ran business development for their interactive division, which got me into mobile. So from 2004, I've been in the mobile ecosystem. This is pre-smartphones, but I've been in content uh, ever since uh, as it relates to mobile. From there, I went to Playboy and was the head of digital media there out of the U.S., uh, but had a very global remit, obviously another analog-based company that was looking to expand itself into digital. Did that until 2009, and then 2009, I joined a video game <clears throat> retailer here in the States called GameStop and was the head of their digital ventures group. So I started and grew their digital business through acquisitions, through new product releases and initiatives. Uh, grew that business by half a billion dollars uh, over the course of the three years that I was there. And then found my way into mobile gaming in uh, 2014, where I joined uh, a company here in San Francisco called Kabam. And was there until 2016 when we sold the company to Netmarble, which is a publicly traded South Korean company. And then in 2016, joined Zynga uh, as the first senior executive hired by our new CEO, Frank Jabot, to help with the turnaround of the company. And here we are three and a half years later or so, and everything's been going pretty well so far. So it's been a great journey in gaming, in mobile, in interactive entertainment, and have enjoyed every minute of it. That's brilliant to hear so, Chris, where do we start? When we think about mergers and acquisitions, it's kind of like a marriage. So I guess, what was your first M&A deal or 
in the metaphor of what was your first date, so to speak? Yeah, my first date was when I was at GameStop and, you know, we were looking for ways to accelerate our ambitions into getting into the digital realm. Obviously, as a video game retailer, or as a retail of anything that's in a physical medium, you want to make sure that you are staying up with the trends of where consumers are going, what kind of content they want to consume, how they want to consume it. So obviously the management team there was realizing that there wasn't an infinite life in selling disc-based games. And so we wanted to get into the digital realm. And the first acquisition that I made was of a great company here in San Francisco run by a brother and sister, uh, Jim and Emily Greer at the time, called Congregate. Still a tremendous company that has, at the time that I bought it, they were mostly a web game portal hosting thousands of free-to-play games, mostly in Flash. But they had a vision for evolving their business into a publisher of games across a multitude of platforms, whether that was browser, downloadable PC, or eventually mobile, where the lion's share of their business is today. And so we really liked that model. We liked the fact that at the time they were agnostic as it related to content, because as a video game retailer, you, you are the same, you're agnostic, and you don't favor any content over another. And Congregate had very much the same mentality, which was the consumers will tell you where the best content is by virtue of the time that they spend and the money that they spend in those games. So we were very much spiritually and strategically aligned in where we saw the gaming industry going. And so they were the tip of our spear uh, at GameStop in terms of getting us into the digital business. So that was a tremendous experience, and Congregate has thrived during its time at GameStop, and then GameStop eventually sold Congregate to MTG, where it currently sits. Uh, so it's been so great to watch the evolution and the journey of that company and to know that we had a little piece of that and getting them to where they are today has been a very fulfilling. Yeah, that's a brilliant story. In fact, I think Emily said to me that she thinks she's one of the rare people who sold her company twice. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess when we think about developers who are looking to sell, because I know there'll be a lot of developers listening to this podcast there seem to be a few options for them. I mean, some might just want to sell a studio or a game. Some might sell to an umbrella company like Stillfront. And some might consider selling to a larger player like Zynga. What are the key differences between these options and what conditions make it right to choose to sell to a, a larger developer like Zynga, say? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for each of us in the market that are considered buyers or acquirers or homes for developers, you know, we each have our own characteristics and attributes and value that we can bring to the equation. Because to your point, it's a great analogy. This is a relationship. It is a dating relationship. It is a marriage relationship. Because at the end of the day, you want to make sure that as a developer, you're finding a partner and a home that you can be at for a long time and be able to fulfill your vision and be able to bring mutual value to one another. You know, we pride ourselves in being able to provide a home for developers where they can continue to do their best work, focus on what they're passionate about, and give them access to tools, technologies, people, resources, capital that can accelerate their ambitions. And for us, you know, we bring in successful, smart founders, entrepreneurs, game developers, game makers that teach us about development, teach us about publishing, uh, keep us on the forefront of, of innovation. So it really is a, a mutually beneficial environment that we try and create but as it relates to developers making decisions, it really is incumbent upon them to educate themselves about the values and the benefits that a certain company can bring to them relative to their vision. And staying true to that throughout the process is key in my mind. And so are you looking more for developers that then bring you like a holistic idea developed wing to wing? Or 
are you also looking out for, let's say, a particular element of it? Let's say I'm a developer and I, my, my game is basically crap in terms of idea, but I have a really, really good engine. Is this something that is also an element you scout on the market for? Or do you look for somebody who already have proven themselves in the marketplace as well? Yeah, uh, another great question. I think for us in particular, technology is less at the forefront of what we look at, you know, given that we are primarily a Unity shop. And so, you know, that technology is already taken care of for us at the base level. For us, we are looking for great teams, great founders that have made uh, a game or a series of games that have resonated with audience in some way, shape or form as evidenced by the KPIs. So not every game is obviously going to be a tremendous commercial success. It might have some critical acclaim, but at the very least has some key performance indicators or KPIs that are interesting to us in the sense that we can help accelerate or grow those KPIs at scale. So whether it's, you know, early to mid retention, whether it's late retention, whether it's the, you know, the return on ad spend that they're seeing, the payback periods, any of these metrics and others that are focused on the game and the user that we find interesting and industry leading or at the top of their class in terms of uh, the market. You know, those are super interesting to us because our view is that one plus one can equal three in the right calculus. And, and what that means is if there's a talented team that brings a game with some interesting fundamentals to the table and they can plug themselves into our plumbing, as I like to call it, our infrastructure, our publishing capabilities, our technology capabilities, our product management capabilities, our administrative capabilities, and what results in that is one plus one equals three which we've been fortunate enough to see with the last few acquisitions that we've done, uh, that's a tremendous benefit uh, to both us as well as the, the studio that's being acquired and obviously to our shareholders as well. Excellent. Really helpful. Some of the developers might be out there thinking, when is the right time to get married into a long-lasting M&A deal? What are some of the indicators that they should think about? When is the best time to, to make that decision and start looking? Yeah, as you know, deciding to date and get married is a very individual decision. And there isn't a single answer that I can give that I think would apply equally to all developers. I think developers have to be self-aware around their own capabilities, their own ambitions and aspirations, and the scalability of their business given their existing resources. And once they come to terms with those realities or those decisions, they then decide to keep going based on the merits of the business itself, perhaps seek uh, financial investment in order to allow them to accelerate their ambitions and fully realize their vision for their business. Or instead of raising money, perhaps they see themselves plugging into a larger entity that can provide them with a lot of the resources that they would otherwise have to invest those dollars into themselves and allow them to just focus on what they love to do best, which is make great games that resonate with users around the world. We've been very lucky in our transactions and our recent acquisitions, small giant games, Graham games, uh, the board and card division of Peak Games. In each of those situations, the leaders of that studio were all of the same mindset, which is, you know, hey, we just want to make great products and run great services that resonate with audiences around the world, and we'll leave the rest to a partner to help us with. Now they still run their businesses very autonomously. They maintain their own culture, they maintain their own brand, they maintain their own identity. And again, to my earlier analogy about the plumbing, we just have a lot of things that we have invested in and built over the last 10 plus years that this company has been in existence that 
take a lot of time and money and effort and resources to build. So if you can find a partner that already has that plumbing that you're otherwise looking for to have to build yourself and you can plug into that and you know leave the rest to yourself, which is just focus on making great products, I think that's a great outcome. Definitely, given that scale is what many developers are after. A quick question. So how does it start? How does a developer then, once they've decided it's ready, it's time, I should find an acquirer, what should they do next? Yeah, I think obviously the first thing is to have a discussion with the, the shareholders, whether they have investors, whether they are bootstrapped and owned just by themselves. Having that consensus to start the process and put yourself out there is key. Because what I can tell you is that on my side, being at a larger company, you know, these processes are ones that we do quite regularly and we have a pretty good cadence and rhythm and process that we go through. For smaller studios, especially ones that have never been through this before, it can be a very time-consuming and burdensome activity. And you want to minimize that as much as possible for a number of reasons. Number one, you want to continue to make sure that you have the bandwidth to focus on running your business. And number two, you want to make sure that you're not so overwhelmed by the process that it just becomes a negative experience. And so to me, once you have alignment among yourselves as the management team, if you have board members, if you have investors, the next step is to find a great advisor to whom you can help offload a lot of this work and process. And they also happen to know folks like Zynga and others in the marketplace that they can reach out to and start positioning you in the marketplace appropriately. Um, I know that there's an adage out there that says the best companies are bought, not sold. And I think in, to a certain degree, there's some truth in that. But at the same time, I'm pretty confident in saying that very few of these companies that are quote unquote bought, not sold, went at it themselves and didn't have smart advisors and vendors behind them that were helping them, whether it was investment bankers, whether it was lawyers, whether it was their investors, board members. It does take a village to um, to make these things happen. And you know, in the case of these marriages, it is very information heavy. And so you want to make sure that you are positioned well to provide that information to those that are interested in you. Is there a typical pattern how early or late companies decide to put themselves on the market? Or in other words, how often is it that a company right from the get-go tries to be like the perfect dating material for you, so to speak, and has that immediately set up? And if so, would there be such a thing? What are the things that if I would decide to start a company and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to achieve market success, and uh, you can be still skeptical about it and say, hey, if you're that sure, here are the three things that you can do from the get-go to make as little friction as possible. Yeah, obviously, you know, the proof is in the pudding in the sense that you have to actually execute on that idea and that vision, and it manifests itself in some measure of success, whether it's critical or commercial, so that companies like Zynga can see that, you know, you have built something that has the beginnings or even past that is already on tremendously successful trajectory. I think for certain companies, perhaps they have a little more appetite to look at earlier stage companies that are either pre-product or pre-revenue because as we talked earlier, each acquirer has its own set of needs and circumstances that they avail themselves to. So again, not everybody looks at companies at the same stage. Some are more risk averse, some are more risk tolerant. For Zynga in particular, as you've seen from our acquisitions, you know we have brought on teams with companies and games of scale and of consequence that have been together for a long time, that have seen some commercial success. And so for us, you know we tend to be a little more risk averse as it relates to looking at things that are too early 
before there's been any any market success, whereas other acquirers may have a specific need either from a technology or talent perspective or just have tremendous conviction in a game that is in soft launch or is about to be launched uh, that they want to get behind. You know, for us, we like to see the data. Uh, we like to see that a team has been able to achieve some measure of success on its own, and we're willing to compensate appropriately for that, but would really like to see that kind of traction first under their feet before so, we engage. So you would be skeptical about somebody who comes in with a plan in mind already to be acquired, right? So you would say, hey, plan for doing it on your own, and then we talk about it later uh, instead of the other way around. So there's two answers to that. One, I think, going to the actual preparing yourself for being acquired, I think the best companies out there are the ones that put practices in place from day one that ensure that when and if the time comes for them to be acquired, that they actually have the tools and the resources in place to make it that much easier to engage with interested parties like Zynga. So what I mean by that is, you know, from day one, you should be setting up your company operationally, administratively, from an information flow perspective to benefit not only your own business, but eventually, you know, availing that information and that operation to third parties. I can tell you that there have been many examples that I've been a part of where you engage with a company that you're interested in and they don't have documentation, they don't have, you know, a data warehouse repository that has been built and is operating well. You know, they're kind of just still operating as a garage startup, you know, running out of their own flat as opposed to a professional enterprise. And I think those kinds of things in the beginning are super important because they make it easier to run your business, whether you stay independent or not. It's just, to me, setting up those best practices on day one is, is super important. In terms of, you know, setting yourself up to be bought, in terms of pitching yourself from the moment you launch a company, again, I think you know, to each his own in terms of how they want to position themselves in the marketplace. To us, the game data doesn't lie, and those key performance indicators are the ones that we rely on first and foremost, at least in terms of having an initial view of a business. And then the next most important thing for us is the relationship with the founders and the management team to make sure that we are philosophically aligned, spiritually and culturally aligned in terms of how we see the industry going, what we see for ourselves, and how we see ourselves being able to benefit each other. And that takes time. And we pride ourselves on building those relationships. I think in the case of both Small Giant and Graham Games, we first engage with those teams at least 18 months prior to the eventual transaction. And it was really more based on just an admiration for their company, their team, and their games uh, and what they had built up until that point. Uh, and then from there, it just organically grew. The relationship did to a point where they got to know about more about us. We got to know more about them. And as they were having their own thoughts about where they were going to take their company and, and what the next step was, It just came to them more naturally that a partner like Zynga would make sense for us to be able to accelerate our ambitions versus going at it ourselves. And so we think the relationship building is super important. And obviously, being mindful of the data and the performance of the products are, are super important as well. Excellent. Getting married is one thing. You can always say that getting married, having the party, successful. But we know that it's not just a transaction. So how do you know if a deal has been successful in the long run? And what does that time horizon look like? Boy, that's a great question. Um, you know, we don't really have set time horizons on measuring success because we don't like to put a, a ticking clock on it, so to speak. I mean, there are obviously deal structures that you put in place that have certain time horizons. But, you know, our view is always that a new addition to the family is going to be a permanent part of the family and they're going to be able to deliver 
on an ongoing basis the next in the greatest you know uh, a series of games in our portfolio and we see them as an integral part of the company going forward and you know i think in graham games case and small giants case and also in zynga turkey's case that has been true beyond our wildest expectations and so we've been super thrilled with the way in which those studios and teams and companies have performed while they've been um, in partnership with us and uh, during our marriage um, and to your point, you know, the transaction part is hard, but relative to what happens the day after the ink is dry, it's it's relatively easy in the sense that you negotiate terms, you sign on the dotted line, and then from there on in, it's, you know, like signing the marriage certificate, you know, after you get back from your honeymoon, now the reality starts. And so for us, it is a daily effort at working at the relationship, giving and taking, offering compromise coming up with creative solutions, but ultimately doing it together in a way that's additive to their business as well as, as Zynga's. And we've found tremendous success in that collaborative approach. And we've been really, really pleased with the results. And so I think that there's a point after the acquisition where you go through periods of integration. And to me, there is a long history of acquisitions that fail during this post-deal integration phase. Because people think that, you know, once you sign on the dotted line, the work has ended. And, and in my mind, the work is just beginning uh, because the effort associated with getting to that one plus one equals three calculus is an all day, every day. You know, we run live services. And so these things don't just end, you know, they're living, breathing things that we need to invest in on a daily basis. I would argue, you know, the games are kind of a analogy to kids and, and we all want to see these kids grow and age and, and continue to succeed and thrive. And so that's kind of how we approach it. Really interesting metaphor. I'm wondering, these companies you invest in, the cultures, they're all different. How do you reconcile making sure that there's a good cultural fit after integration and the teams can collaborate? Yeah, I think a lot of that starts with what I alluded to earlier, which is the relationship building with the management team. And if we did not know after 18 months of building that relationship with the folks at Graham and the folks at Small Giant, whether something was going to work, I don't know how else we would do it. I do think having that philosophical, spiritual, strategic alignment in terms of what you want as a leader in your studio, what you want for your company, what you want for yourself, what you want for your employees, what you want for your games. Um, having those discussions early on and being super transparent about that uh, in both directions. You know, we are somewhat of an open book, if you will, by virtue of the fact that we're public. So, you know, people can see a lot of information about us, but I think really peeling the onion layer back one to two more layers and letting those studios into our daily lives and seeing how we run our business, you know, allowing them to confirm that we are leaders and executives that have high integrity, that are well-regarded, and we'll do what we say and we'll say what we do. And ultimately, you know, we have a mantra with these studios that we want to do less to do more, which means that, you know, we're not going to get in your business. We're not going to force you to become under our brand umbrella. We want you to keep your identity. We want you to keep your culture. We want you to continue to be in charge of how you run the business on a day-to-day basis. And however we can help uh, accelerate or grow that success is where we can add the greatest value. But the reason why these studios have gotten to where they are is because of their culture and their Mm -hmm. environment and the team that they have built around them. And we do not want to touch that in any way, shape, or form because that's where you start getting into trouble. Right. And so if you're a developer and maybe Zynga's passed you over for some reason, we hopefully not, and they're talking to many other potential acquirers, what are some red flags they should look out for just to be aware of? There are a number of red flags. I think, you know, 
trying to appropriate your culture and your environment and, and you know, forcing you to adopt a different way of doing business on day one for most folks is a really hard thing to absorb. Unless, again, you're philosophically and spiritually aligned that that's what you want for yourself and your team. I think seeing the kind of deal terms that are put in front of you that make you feel like it's being set up for failure as opposed to success, you know, that is a red flag. The lack of a relationship building exercise if transactions are done Look, there are transactions that are done quickly all the time, but I still believe that it's important to establish that interpersonal relationship between and among the teams uh, because if all goes well, which is what you presuppose will happen, you're going to be with each other for a very long time. And conversely, as an acquirer, when you look at and engage with studios and you know you hear things like, hey, you know, we really don't have a big interest in being part of this transaction after it ends, that to me is something to be concerned about because it tells me that there isn't this collaborative desire that perhaps maybe it's more financially driven than it is just to continue to deliver great products and services to customers. Um, so those are the kind of things that I feel uh, that folks need to be aware of. Obviously, you know, these are the analogous common sense things that you see in relationships all the time. Um, and it's no different when you're talking about uh, M&A in our space. Cool. So I guess if you had to give maybe one or two pieces of advice outside of the red flags to developers, what might they be if they're looking to be acquired? I think the pieces of advice are, you know, surround yourself with smart people who can advise you in terms of how to go through this process and be invested in the time that it takes to establish and build relationships with folks that are interested in you or that you're interested in. And those two things will carry you a long way in this process to make sure that you have a higher likelihood of success. Excellent. Let's flip on to a different side and say that you've entered into a relationship and you realized maybe you didn't do all that due diligence that Chris recommended. Maybe you hadn't listened to the podcast in time and you find yourself in this situation where you've got a broken relationship. You're arguing all the time, misaligned. Why are you looking at me, Tamsin? (laughs) (laughs) Well, luckily we're in different rooms, Dirk. Anyway... Chris, what kind of advice would you give to developers who might be in that situation? Yeah, whatever the analogy is for seeking counseling is what I would advise. (laughs) I think it's all about communication and honesty and transparency. And if you are at a point where you are revisiting and fighting over the terms of a contract a few months in, you know, those are troubling circumstances for sure. In fact, we have kind of a philosophy where, you know, we would love environments where the day that we sign the contract is the last day that we're looking at it. Because when you're at a point where you're pulling back out contracts and revisiting and renegotiating in total a deal that you spent a lot of time getting into in the first place, you know, that's a troubling sign that the the relationship has already moved on to a point of potentially irreconcilable differences. So open, honest communication, whether it's good or bad, and if things aren't working out, uh, having that, that open and honest conversation and and owning up to it and and perhaps finding solutions that are, you know, mutually beneficial or as amicable as can be when, when there's a split happening. But we really do hope that, you know, the time is taken on the front end to make sure that you know your future partner as much as possible and as well as possible so that you're not at a point where you're seeking counseling or pulling out the marriage certificate and revisiting it. You know, you want to be able to to be looking forward and working together collaboratively. And when you're in these places where you're not, obviously, the sooner you can come to a conclusion and a resolution, the better, because there's nothing worse than having these things drag out because emotion takes over. 
things get heated, things get messy, things get said. So not all acquisitions work out. We obviously try to make sure that they all do, but you know, let's not all forget that there there's a human element to this uh, and that people's livelihoods are are at stake. And so you know, we want to make sure that people are as open and honest and transparent and amicable as possible, even in the difficult times. You mentioned in the past you're a public company and so you need to do reporting. Is there anything else that these companies should be aware of in terms of how being acquired by a larger company might impact the running of their business? Yeah, I think for a public company in particular, you know, we have certain obligations as a public company to our shareholders, to our constituents, to make sure that we're accurately reporting the state of the business. And so, you know, while our general approach with acquisitions is what we call light touch acquisition, which is going back to that mantra of do less to do more, you know, we don't require a lot of our acquired entities out of the gate in terms of absorbing or assimilating our technologies, our tools, uh, our resources into their business. We make pretty much all of the things that I described earlier uh, in this conversation available to studios on an opt-in basis, which means, hey, if you want to take advantage of our technology stack, if you want to take advantage of our data and analytics, if you want to take advantage of our publishing acumen, if you want to take advantage of all of our administrative services that we have, these are available to you and free for you, and you can access at your disposal. And there are just maybe a few things around financial and game data level reporting that are more of a requirement for us. But beyond that, we don't try and force anything down the throat of any of these companies that have joined the family. Again, they have gotten to where they are today on their own merits. And you know, we have a thesis that a lot of our resources can help them accelerate their current success and amplify that. But ultimately, it's their decision on what they want to take advantage of and when. And we're happy to provide as much or as little as they want to take advantage of. Just think of it as a, a menu of options that we provide. And you can opt into some, all, or none of it uh, at your leisure. And beyond just, again, the, the few little levels of reporting requirements that we have as a public company, there's not much more that's compulsory. And we find that that works very well as opposed to, you know, many of us in our past have gone through acquisitions where we've tried to be assimilated or assimilate the acquisition into the fabric of the parent company and it just doesn't feel natural and organic and it feels rushed and you know there's that word synergies that always comes up and I feel like that's somewhat of an overused term uh, because to me synergies have to feel natural and come organically and not be forced and we've all experienced acquisitions where that has not been the case and as a result the likelihood of them working out is much lower so for us again very collaborative all of our services are available on an opt-in basis and ultimately just want to preserve the operations and the cadence and the culture of, of the acquired studio so that on day one after the acquisition, it's pretty much business as usual for them. And then over time, as they take advantage of things on that menu that we offer, we hope that they see the amplification that we believe happens as a result of those efforts. Are there any things that typically come as a surprise to the companies you acquire? Like, is there something that you see as a pattern that those founders typically don't have on their radar when they enter those discussions? I think it's just the sheer amount of resources and the amount of investment that has gone into it. And look, we're a company that's been around for 10 plus years, and we certainly have launched enough games to be able to have learned from both our failures and our successes and be able to apply those going forward. And in almost all cases where we're talking about acquisition, these are companies that have been around for 
a lot shorter time period by definition than we have. So I think when they come in and see what it is that we use from a technology tool and resources perspective to inform our decision making on both the art and the science side of things, they find that very helpful, somewhat refreshing that we are as a large company that's been around for a while continuing to invest in those things. And I think ultimately they get excited because it means that they don't have to invest in those things themselves and they don't have to uh, spread themselves out too thin, that they can just focus on what they want to do, which is continuing to make great live service products that delight people around the world. And so for us to be able to give them the opportunity to take advantage of, like I said, our data science, our technology, our publishing, that they don't have to the same scale and isn't as battle-tested and isn't as tenured, those things are nice surprises for them as they get to learn more about us. So Chris, it's great hearing how much experience you've had at Zynga and in the past. And I'm really curious, with everything you've seen to date, all of the conversations you've had, what is your view on the market at the moment? What's your view on consolidation and how this might be impacting innovation? Yeah, so consolidation is a natural part of any fast-growing industry. And obviously, we're blessed to be in an industry that's the largest media and entertainment sector in the world. I think mobile in particular as a subset of gaming has experienced meteoric growth if you use the you know the launch of app stores and smartphones as kind of day one, we have inside of 10, 12 years, you know, become the fastest growing gaming vertical. And we definitely, as a result of that, have seen a lot of shakeout in terms of the major players in the space. Whether it's on the developer side, whether it's on the ad network side, we're starting to see an increasing wave of consolidation happening. I think a lot of that is not unique to our industry. We've seen that in a lot of other industries. And what drives that quite a bit is obviously the rising bar associated with being able to be successful on an ongoing basis as an independent company. Obviously, the the cost of doing business goes up, uh, both from a talent perspective, from a product perspective, and from a marketing perspective. These are all costs that if you chart them from the beginning of the App Store era to today have gone up meteorically. And so, you know, you need the scale to be able to continue investing in those endeavors. And we are ultimately uh, a business that relies on, you know, launching new product, uh, bringing new services to customers. But we also see the importance of having sustaining franchises as a way to keep a large audience captive within your games and your portfolio of games. So Zynga, by example, you know, has now five franchises. We call them forever franchises on our end two of which were brought in through the last two acquisitions, but the first three of which have been around for anywhere between seven and 12 years. And that's a tremendously valuable asset that is harder and harder to come by as you're a newer and newer entrant into a a fast evolving space. So I think consolidation is a natural byproduct. And I think when done well, uh, I think it, it can be additive. I think the one thing that early stage companies are always going to be better at than, than larger later stage companies is innovation is uh, coming up with the fast and agile and nimble ideas that they can bring to market quickly and test and invest and, and get behind them, you know, more so than, than a company like Zynga. And so, you know, we always look for that innovation and there is constantly going to be a place for it, whether it's in gaming or other sectors. But the good news is that the consolidation does allow for paths of exit for companies that are getting into this space, assuming that they can execute on their innovative ideas. And so, I don't think consolidation is something to be afraid of. I think it's just a natural reality and can actually be very beneficial to the ecosystem when done properly. Excellent. So, Chris, I have to ask you this. Given what you see, give us your prediction for the future. What will be the next big genre? 
Ooh. So I think there's a number of things out there that are interesting. I think the largest one is just this notion that platforms as separate ecosystems or environments will, will matter less in the future. And what I mean by that is that, you know, consumer expectations are, are continuing to mature, are continuing to, to raise the bar in terms of what they expect to see. And I think what we're seeing now, as evidenced by Fortnite and PUBG and Roblox and Minecraft and Hearthstone and others, is that there is the ability to bring a singular game IP and perhaps even a singular game experience to customers across a multitude of platforms. And I think with the technological enhancements and advancements that are happening with 5G on mobile, with cloud and streaming, these things are going to become more of a reality. And as a result, you know, more of an expectation from consumers to be able to play the same game across a number of screens and to be able to play between and among customers and users that are on these other platforms. And so I think that to me is a really exciting future potential opportunity and that, you know, companies like Zynga are no longer going to refer to themselves uh, as developers uh, beholden to a single platform. So we're no longer going to perhaps in the future call ourselves a mobile game developer, but perhaps a game developer of great games that can just live on a multitude of platforms and screens and can interact with one another. So I think that's an exciting prospect for us to, to be mindful of. That's definitely an area we're very excited about as well as it broadens your audience for games across the world. That's right. It certainly does raise the stakes if you're a game developer now, doesn't it? It sure does. But look, I mean, there's plenty of plenty of opportunity still in focusing on a single platform or a primary platform. But to your point, the total addressable market does get much bigger. And I think, you know, the next generation of great gaming companies will be at their core will have two aspects to them. One is the ability to deliver games cross-platform and two is continuing to run best-in-class, free-to-play live services. And so I think those ingredients are going to be key going forward. Excellent. Thank you so much, Chris. We really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm sure that our listeners did as well and took a lot away for when they do eventually build their best game service and come to you to sell it. We look forward to speaking to each and every one of them, and thank you for having me. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for your insights. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us for this Apps, Games and Insights podcast. If you have any thoughts on the topics raised, we would love to hear from you at Google Play Devs on Twitter. Join us for the third episode next week, where we are talking to Holly Ackerman, Head of Business Development, and Richard Lambert, Head of Communications at sports streaming service DAZN, about how to make the most effective use of subscriptions when monetizing your app or game.